Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn here in a frozen Wiltshire. Hello, it's Richard Heller here in a sunny but icy southeast London. And Charles Lysant in Dublin, uh, sunny, dry, cold. We're delighted to welcome back Charles to the podcast. Charles is um, a leading author and historian, particularly on the subject of uh, Irish cricket. Uh, he's also been in his time a distinguished lawyer. And um, we're going to pick up with him the story of Irish cricket and the fascinating people who've um, played it and supported it. The thing was with Charles that he was so fascinating and so eloquent that to advance from the sort of mid-18th century where Irish cricket began, we'd only got as far as the early, very early 20th century before close of play. And so we've had to uh, invite him back for a second innings. And yet, even though we've only got up to 1920, I think one of the first things we've got to ask is actually about almost the prehistory of Irish cricket, because we've all seen, I think, a very recent documentary making the rather fascinating suggestion that Cricket began in Ireland, and cricket was be- a form of cricket was being played in Ireland before it was sort of imported from England. And I'd wondered what um, Charles thought of this series. The Irish game is called Catty, and it seems to have been centred on Wexford and Kilkenny. Yes, yes. I, I have to say I wasn't too convinced by the thesis he was putting forward. I don't know that in that period there were that many uh, Irish in the a British army as early as that, but um, he based it on some Gaelic words and uh, resemblances in language, which I wasn't really convinced by. Car is a word for throw, and he thought that somehow was linked into cricket. I think there were just a lot of ball games, stick and ball games everywhere, uh, which... Uh, weren't really regularised into the codes of a game that was played more widely until the 18th century. And a whole lot of games descend from them. Hurling, perhaps, in Ireland, the faster-moving game. Cricket would be, I suppose, a slower-moving game. I I just wasn't uh, too convinced by it, but still it was well-produced. And anything that talks up Ireland is to be welcomed, of course. (laughs) Oh. <laughs> yeah, it makes oh. us import- small countries like to be important <laughs> in the world. <laughs> so A noble fiction, yes. Actually, picking up something you said a moment ago, Charles, you mentioned a Gaelic word for throwing. It occurs to me to ask now, are there Gaelic terms for cricket? Has it ever found them necessary? No, the closest, I think, and it isn't really a cricket word, is the word kitogue. Kitogue is used for a left-handed player. Does it mean any left-handed player? I mean, any left, any le- any left-handed person. Yes, it wouldn't. I think anyone who's left-handed okay. is used. But that would come into cricket, and a lot of Irish batsmen are left-handed uh, because oh. of hurling, in a way. Because in hurling, you keep their hands in a different order on the hurling. Um, if you're playing a hurley shot right-handed, so to speak, you put the left hand below the right hand. Hmm. 
Although often when boys who learned hurling at the primary school turned to cricket, they became left-handed batsmen because they had got used to having the right hand at the top of the bat, of the top of the handle. That is very interesting because if you do that, you become automatically, I think, become a more correct batsman because it takes away that right-handed swing to mid-wicket, which is the besetting sin of most of our games, that we tend to bring far too much right hand and break the technical purity of our batting. Yeah, so I remember being at the Gover School as a boy and hearing <laughs> poor old Arthur Wellard saying to me, less right hand, less right hand. <laughs> Peter, the best coach that Peter and I ever had, uh, we talked about him recently, was um, Abid Ali in the United States on our American tour. Ex-Indian yeah. all-rounder, and his advice was always, strangle the bat with your left hand. Oh, yeah. It meant that they were leg-side players. The uh, left-hand batsmen tended to not be that strong on the offside. And I don't know if that was uh, peculiar to them in Ireland. In Pakistan, the last of the great Muhammad brothers, Sadiq, was forcibly converted by his elder brothers into being a left-hander because they, they didn't have any left-handers in the family and they thought they needed one. You know, and they thought it would increase his chances of selection. And indeed, he batted very well with his left hand as a left-hander for the rest of his life. Before we advance beyond partition, there's one last uh, question I want to ask you, Charles, arising out of our fascinating conversation with the historian of Scottish cricket, Fraser Sim, who spoke of the link between Scottish and Irish cricket through Colonel Leg Lennox, the, the future Duke of Richmond. Yeah. Because I seem to remember that he was playing in that first ever recorded match in the, what was it, the late 1790s, which was the future Duke of Wellington was also playing. Did he bowl out Wellington? I think he, well, Wellington was playing under the name of Westby, but people think it was really Wesley, uh, which was his original name. So Lennox bowled out Wellington and yeah. then... 20 years later, it's very haunting, this. It, presumably it was his wife, the Duchess of Richmond's Ball, on the eve of Waterloo. So he hosted, his wife hosted uh, oh, yeah. the man he dismissed for five runs, if you, I think yeah. I'm right in saying, uh, 20 years earlier on the ball on the eve of that momentous historic battle. And he was Lord Lieutenant of Ireland at one point as well, the Duke of Richmond in the early 19th century. Any other connections between Scottish and Irish cricket? Well, the famous uh, uh, Charles Lawrence, you know, the professional, he came to Ireland from England, from Scotland. I don't know if he was originally from Scotland, but he was the famous mid-19th century professional who organised cricket for about 10 years. And then in round Dublin, professional cricket. Uh, he organised professionals to play. He was the professional for the Phoenix Club. And then he moved to England and he went with an English team to Australia about 1860, uh, touring cricket team. And he settled in Australia, spent the rest of his life there. But he returned at one point, I think in the 1870, with a team of Aboriginals. Oh, that was him. He was the one that's who him. brought that's Mr. Lawrence was the manager. Yep. Yes, he was the manager of that. I think that's mm -hmm. correct. So he had an interesting life. He goes on in Melbourne until the, I think, just into the new century. 
My mm. words. How absolutely did. gripping. Of course, there were a number of Irishmen and he, who... Yes. Go, you go on, Charles. He brought an Irish team to play against the MCC in 1858 at Lords, and they defeated the MCC. It was an early Irish victory over the, <laughs> over the English, was their team he brought to play in 1858 at Lords. And was that an 11-a-side? They didn't play against odds. It was, yes, I can't. Very impressive, if it were. Yes. Yeah. Well, Cookie, it was, as we discussed uh, last time we were conversing, I mean, the, there was a phenomenal amount of cricket, wasn't there, particularly around Kilkenny uh, in Ireland in the 19th century? Yes, certainly the 80, it became very popular the 1860s, 1870s, but it went on a bit. It receded uh, in the beginning of the 20th century in rural Ireland. I suppose um, they think the less good landlord-tenant relations played a part in it, and hurling got underway. The G Gaelic Athletic Association became stronger and that uh, overtook cricket in rural areas. But in some areas, like Kilkenny, it went on. It remained strong until the Second World War. And it wasn't just in the States. There were village teams. So it varied from area to area in Ireland, I think. But uh, by and large, as the 20th century ground on, it became concentrated in Dublin, really, uh, in the Republic. But all over rural areas in in Ulster, in Northern Ireland, it would have been played, but largely by Protestants. There was very few, the GAA had seemed to, the Gaelic Association had a complete grip on Catholics, really. So it was very much a Protestant game in the North. Um, there was one odd more. There was a Catholic village in County Londonderry which uh, played it, but. Uh, Generally, it was a one-community sport, as was rugby, strangely, in, in the north of Ireland. And to a degree, uh, hockey and soccer, even soccer was a one-community sport. But that wasn't true in the south. Perhaps this is the moment, Charles, to, to bring in partition and ask you about the effect of partition on, on, on Irish cricket. Partition, I'm interested you use the word partition. I would have been using the word independence. <laughs> <laughs> Strangely, yeah. because uh, independence, I mean, I know partition, Indeed, I bow to I know your, partition yeah. came with independence. But, um, you know, most of Ireland became a dominion independent after 1921. But the interesting thing was... Uh, that while the Ulster Protestant community wanted partition, they didn't move to partition sports on the whole. In fact, the Irish Cricket Union was formed just after that, uh, forming one cricket union for the whole island. Now, it may have just been pragmatism that if you divided up the country, you wouldn't have a decent team. That would have played one calculation. And also the people who played cricket in the south had an affinity with the people who played in the north. So that helped along to keep the country together for those sports. Charles, it was something of an accident, wasn't it, that Irish football separated into the Republic and um, or the Free State initially and, um, and Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland acquired a separate team. It was something of an accident, wasn't it, because the... Um, 
the Irish Football Association sort of stayed in the north and claimed to run the whole of um, Irish football and the, the south then formed a football association of its own and it was complicated by England's non-relationship with FIFA, the, the world body. But I think the general rule was for Irish sport to stay united, wasn't it? Yes, there was a difficulty with athletics at one stage, which resulted in Ireland not taking part in several Olympic Games. They didn't take part in the Berlin Olympics mm-hmm. in '36. There was the same kind of dispute uh, existed there. There was a, uh, an athletics body that was the counterpart of the GAA, the Gaelic Athletic Association, and it was claiming to represent the whole island, whereas uh, the view was it was states should be represented at the Olympics. So that caused a difficulty. But soccer was quite... um, A, of course, the Belfast, the relations were worst at a working-class level in Belfast, and um, Lingfield would play... Uh, Celtic, and that was like Glasgow, where Rangers would play Celtic, and there was a bitter community rift. And even to this day, there's the curious thing that the Derry, Derry, which has a Catholic majority in the city of Derry, uh, its team plays in the Southern Leagues. Mm-hmm. It doesn't take part in the Northern soccer. But I think it's the sharper social division in the working classes in Belfast is part of the explanation of what you are talking about. Charles, did the civil wars, because um, there are really two of them, did the civil wars in Ireland impact on cricket and sport in, in any way? Uh, and in particular, was was cricket targeted as potentially an, you know, an English game? Not cricket as such. There was one incident in Trinity College in Dublin when a British military team were playing a Trinity team and it was at the height of the War of Independence and some people fired into the ground and they killed a female spectator. So that was the only recorded impingement uh, on cricket of either war. Of course, there were guerrilla wars, so life went on much as before, I suppose, in the same way as in the North for all those years. And people just couldn't put everything. But no, cricket, none of those sports were targeted in that way in those years. That's good to hear. The most extreme Republican was a man called Carl Brewer, who as a young man had been called Charlie Burgess. And he was, in fact, had been a very good cricketer as a young man, played (laughs) for Pembroke where I played. And uh, he he, um, was killed in the Civil War. But he was a cricketer. I'm sure a few others were cricketers. Goodness. Did he have an obituary in, in wisdom? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think that's so. One, that's one to look up. They Maybe got... it's time. Wisdom is now doing retrospective obituaries because it's acknowledging the various biases it used to have in the in the past, particularly against, I think, women cricketers who didn't who played very distinguished and didn't get in. I wonder whether Mr Burgess ought to we ought to make a bid for one for him now. Yes, indeed, yes, he would be worthy of it. I'll speak to the editor of Wisdom on this subject. Yeah. Yes. Indeed. Charles, did um Irish cricket after independence have any sort of relationship with the MCC or with the Imperial Cricket Conference? And if not, was it sort of held back by the lack of such a relationship? 
No, I don't think, well, I don't know about the Imperial Cricket Conference. I know the MCC kept up a very good relationship with Irish cricket every year between the two uh, from the I think the end of the First World War, it started even earlier, an MCC team of amateurs came to play the Irish team. It was always a great three-day fixture, a first-class fixture, and occasionally the Irish team would go to play the MCC at Lords, and that was a two-day fixture, so it didn't rank as a first-class fixture. But, you know, the MCC certainly kept that warm relationship. I'd imagine it was the same as the relationship with Scotland. See, in a way, the sport in these islands, in all those sports, Ireland, despite the political change, stood in the same relationship to the Britain of England as Scotland did. People didn't much notice the difference, I think. Sam Beckett would have played in one of two of those matches, maybe, wasn't he? He would have been a a keen cricketer, a good cricketer in the 20s, wasn't he? The future, the great playwright. Yes, he played just on the Trinity team. See, the Trinity team, if they played a three-day match, ranked as a first-class team. And he played several games against Northampton for Trinity. Not for Ireland, but for Trinity. Thus acquiring a first-class record. That's his claim. And then they ceased to be play those games. So, you know, they were no longer a first-class team. It's curious, I'm sure you know, Charles, the curious survival is that the Trinity College Library is still a copyright library for the United Kingdom, and you have to deposit your book there if you publish one. Yes, yes, I do know. <laughs> I think there are so many books coming out now that it's all creating a great problem. <laughs> well, they put, I think they, they were right to every book, but I'm not sure that they accept every book. <laughs> No, no, oh, well, that, that's obviously going to be a new cachet. You know, you can put it, one can put in one's title, accepted by the Trinity College <laughs> Library. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, Charles, we pick up, uh, in spite of this relationship you described, enduring relationship with the MCC, there seems to be a degree of stagnation in Irish cricket in the 20s and 30s, and there doesn't seem to be much movement of Irish cricketers into the English cricket scene. And I've even seen it said that the Irish um, had more influence on Australian cricket than they did on English. And in the 1938 visit of um, Australians, there are a lot of um, you know, people of Irish descent, like McCabe and o- O'Reilly and, um, and, and Finkelton. Yes. Yeah. It's interesting of the, even Gerard Siggins, the, uh, who's done a lot of work on Irish history, he made a list of the Irish-born people who played test cricket when Ireland first got a few years ago when we played Pakistan. He rooted out, I think, 11 people, and an awful lot of them played for Australia, who had been born in Ireland, moved to Australia and played test cricket for Australia. And none of the people you mentioned, there were lesser names pre-First World War. I think a man called Fane was one of the few who played for England, but he was the son of a, a, a British Army officer stationed in the Curra at the time he was born. So, you know, he was uh, not that close a link. And then there were the two Irish, there's uh, Timothy O'Brien, T.C. O'Brien, and um, Leland Hone played for England, of course, they were born. But the interesting thing was that the Irish ethnic group in England, which is very large numerically, doesn't seem to have produced cricketers uh, for the English side. Is that significant, Charles, if one thinks about even the immediate post-World War II period? You know, there was a 
heavy prejudice against Irish immigrants. You know, those famous signs outside landladies' houses, you know, uh, no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Does that play a role in the exclusion of Irish cricketers, do you think? I don't know. I, it's a, a mystery to me how it occurred because there were Irish at all levels in England. So you don't have to, I mean, there were Irish men, high court judges. I mean, there may have been what you talk about, no Irish need apply. I suppose that was the poorer sections of Irish people. But there was a large um, middle class. I wondered if it had to do with the Catholic schools being less keen on cricket don't know why it would have happened, but it's certainly something you can observe. don't know if it's true of soccer. It's certainly not true of soccer, is it, I suspect? Yes. No, although a lot of players of Irish descent elected to pursue their international careers with Ireland, uh, with, with the Irish public or with Northern Ireland, if, if they had a qualification. Especially when the qualifications got a little more elastic and... Uh, there was a great influx of English league players into the um, into the Irish side around the, around the nineteen seventies when people sort of were discovering you know great grandmothers that were had been born in Ireland which made them made them eligible. <laughs> yes, well, of course, it it meant you had a larger pool for the Irish team to choose from, and then uh, you had more chance, I suppose, of getting into an Irish team than you had of getting into an English team. So, uh, so all that would have played a part. Charles, we'll be having Gerald Siggins on in due course. I mean, he's obviously an enormously distinguished historian yes. of the game, and we, we, have, we won't forget about him. But the, the story of Irish women's cricket, when does that start? Well, there's recorded games before the First World War, but, and uh, there was a certain amount of it from the 30s. Then it seemed to die out in the 50s or 60s, and uh, it got going then in the 80s, became quite a strong force again. I suppose just as few fashionable schools might have played it. So you had a few, you had dartry ladies, I remember, when I was growing up, uh, which was... Uh, had a cricket team. One of the lovely things now about playing cricket in Ireland is many of the teams, the rural teams we play against, there will be a couple of ladies, very good ones too, uh, playing against us. Yes, yes, yes. No, they've um, the Joyce Ed Joyce's sister, of course, is a very good player. I didn't know that. Yes, they have an extraordinary cricket family, really. Because Ed Joyce himself, of course, played for England, not a test match, but the other form. And then his brother played for Ireland, and two sisters were on the Irish uh, ladies' cricket team. And one is very good, Isabel, and she played, she's coming to the end of her cricket career now, but she played in the Australian cricket, you know, they have a high high grade uh, cricket for a competition for women in Australia, and she played in that. One of the Ed Joyce's sisters was responsible for the routing of the early Pakistan women's cricket team, founded by the Khan sisters. Um, they played a test match against against Ireland, and I think she took some like they were beaten by an innings, and I think she took about twelve wickets. Who won that game? I thought the Irish were beaten. No, the in the very in the early days when Pakistan. Were, uh, had a pioneering women's team, and actually a most illegal women's team. It was formed with great difficulty by the two wonderful Khan sisters. Yeah. 
But Richard and I have written, a, we're very proud of it, in Richard and I, my book, White on Green, we have a long chapter about the origins of, of Pakistan women's cricket and the role played by these two remarkable sisters, very much against the prevailing ethos of Pakistan society at the end of the mm-hmm. 20th century. Yeah. Yes, they, it was in 2000. It's the only women's test match that Ireland has played. They haven't had a test match since that. Well, they won it by an innings. Uh, they, yeah. wanted, they, they, they were, were simply way too strong. And as yeah. I say, Ed Joyce's sister played a very prominent role in it. Yeah. I always felt uh, very sorry for Ed Joyce. I think his first ever match for England was in a World Cup, was it not, against Ireland in yeah. ODI. And, if, and I just felt here is an Irishman confronted with a, an Irish team. He failed opening the batting. And I felt, I wondered whether that had that affected his batting, actually, playing against his native land. It could have. Though there wasn't ill feeling about that, because at that stage you couldn't play test cricket if you went on playing for Ireland. So it would have been his move to play for England, uh, like Owen Morgan later, wouldn't have been resented. People understood that Ed Joy- why Ed Joyce did. Yeah. There was a great exodus, though, in the when Irish cricket st- suddenly took off and became yeah. very, very good at the st- basically the start of this century. A lot of players just vanished into English county cricket, and Ireland, right. having invested so much in facilities and training and emotional investment, suddenly saw their best players going off to play for an English county and not being available. Oh no, they were available. No, most of those were available play and did play for Ireland and were important in the Irish cricket renaissance. Now, Ed Joyce and later Morgan uh, declared for England, but Sadie O'Brien, Niall O'Brien played for an English mm. county. George Dockrell, um, he played for Somerset. Several of them, uh, uh, Sterling played for Middlesex, you know, got all the runs uh, yesterday. He's... Uh, so several of them, they didn't. It's only since Ireland became a test nation that that doesn't happen because they're now paid to be professionals in Ireland where they have contracts. Ah, so the exodus has stopped. But that exodus parallels something in the soccer world, actually. Irish people used to go to play for English uh, soccer clubs and still play on the Irish team and strengthen the Irish team. Charles, I can see you, the listeners can't, but I can see you. You're wearing a beautiful, magnificent green and orange striped blazer, which I believe, I know, is the, the blazer of the Leprechauns Cricket Club, which was founded, I think, just after World War Two. Perhaps you could tell us about, the, about what the Leprechauns are and how they came about. Yes, Leprechauns, it's a green and orange blazer. It was founded in 1948. And I was president 50 years later, so that's my interest in its 50th anniversary. But it was um, intended to be an Irish version of Free Foresters, travelling club playing against uh, touring teams from England, of which a great number came over after the Second World War. And it was founded by a strange figure called Charles Bowlby, who had settled in in Ireland uh, after the Second World War, and who found the league cricket, which was the staple diet of Dublin cricket, lacked something. And he thought this pre forester style cricket might be an improvement. 
and so he found that the leprechauns. But the odd thing about him, he had a strange background in a sense. Uh, he was born in Ireland, which saved his life actually, but, and he had been the son of an army officer, left the colonel. He'd been educated at Pangbourne at the Naval College in England. He's captain of the cricket team. There's a photograph of him uh, tossing with the Earl Jellicoe <laughs> when the Pangbourne played against the Navy. This was the Jellicoe of Jutland fame, was it? Jutland, the famous, the first Earl Jellicoe. And um, he got involved in the 30s in the fascist movement. Uh, he'd been in business and he failed in business and he blamed the unfortunate Jews for failing in business. So he got involved in the fascist movement with Mosley. And then he went to Budapest as an English teacher. And he was in Budapest when the war broke out and he was interned in Germany. And then, of course, it occurred to him he shouldn't have been interned. He wasn't an enemy alien. He'd been born in Ireland. So he claimed, he said, I'm Irish, so I want to um, be released. So he was released and he looked for employment. And the employment he got was um, broadcasting propaganda with Lord Hoho on behalf of the Germans. Uh, propaganda, William Joyce. And at the end of the war, he was arrested with Joyce. And the question was, should he be prosecuted? And he said, you can't hang me or prosecute me, I'm Irish. So the director of public prosecutions in England, Sir Theobald Matthew, said, if he doesn't turn up in England, we let him off. But unfortunately, he turned up in England, so they just put him on a train to Dublin and got rid of him. <laughs> <laughs> to Ireland. So that solved the problem. They could hang Joyce in peace. Mm. And uh, Bowlby was in Dublin. Now, there was nothing really about it. He applied for a post as a prep schoolmaster in a school which sent boys to English public schools. And he got a job there. Now, there was a newspaper report about it, but it got shrugged off in some strange way. And he settled into a rather pro-English part of Irish society as a prep master, schoolmaster. And it's at this stage that he founds the leprechauns. Now, the British ambassador in Dublin at that stage was a man called Sir John Maffey, later Lord Rugby. And he invites him to become a vice president of the club of which he's the founder. So you get the club founded with, by this man, uh, Bowlby. And uh, the British ambassador is the um, is the vice president of the club. So, and the British ambassador had no problems forming a club with uh, Lord Hawhaw's associate. No, I think that the stance was they had declined to prosecute him, and therefore they just book closed on the whole thing. His parents tried to find out was it really true that their son had done this. And I sought an appointment with the British ambassador to ask him, was this true that he had broadcast with the Germans? And the British ambassador refused to give them any information on it. Why did the British... It's a very interesting question. You've done some research on, yes, on your I, own into this subject. I wrote an article, and I think, I, on it, yes. So why did the British choose not to prosecute what made many people would have seen as a traitor? Well, he was able to invoke his Irish birth, Yes. so there was a complication. He wasn't a major player, 
Lord Hawhaw was a major player. So I suppose it... Um, he must have had something about him, though, to have a chutzpah. How about, to... what about being cynical, upper-class connections, which Joyce didn't have? Did that, would, it, would that have played a fact? Would that, did that play a part? No, you can't say that because they executed Amory, who was the son of, of Quite, Leopold yes. Amory. Good point. No, I think it was the Irish thing was complicated and he wasn't a major player and having treated him as innocent. But his family disowned them. He would never, his father, who lived on longer than he lived, strangely, would never see him again. And um, he settled in Dublin. He founded a school of his own, Led Art, to which quite a few Jewish boys went, although he, he had broadcast some anti-Semitic propaganda. And uh, that school is still going. I moved to Sutton Park School. It still goes. But he, he nearly split the Leprechauns Club about five years after his foundation because he wanted to put red, white and blue on the scorecards for the coronation year. <laughs> and, of course, the whole cricket world would have wanted to be low profile about politics and wouldn't have wanted to provoke people by doing that. And so it's it um, that they restrained him from doing that, and he resigned from the club five six years later, and strangely returned to England, where they didn't seem to object to having them again, and died quite young at the end of the fifties. So that brought his career to an end. I think there should be a novel about him. It's pity Graham Greene didn't write one about him. I think he could have done justice. It's an extraordinary story. There's still a kind of web of silence. The family were, of course, reluctant to tell you too much about him. And then he got he'd a wife, apparently, uh, whom he'd left behind in the 30s. And again, the silence over that. And then there was a lady who used to do his teas, a Mrs. Tibbs. She was a figure at the Leprechaun's games. But he brought a certain exotic quality to the beginning of Leprechauns and got it going. And it was quite quite a force in Irish cricket in the way the Free Foresters had played games against the schools, which uh, it's more difficult now, but that was a big part of it. And then it would play against touring sides, which came from England. And it enabled people from different clubs to come together in one side. And it also kept people in cricket who mightn't want the grind of playing every week for a club side. So it had its position in in cricket life. No, it's done. I've had the privilege, as you know, Charles, of playing against your leprechauns teams for for several decades now and it has a real charm and uh, and and sort of we play declaration fixtures which is most unusual these days we tried to keep the old rules it played some good games in the 70s it could turn out a good side it played against essex county in the 70s it's tended to become more social cricket uh, more recently Charles, you played a lot of cricket yourself in, in Ireland for various sides at a high level. And then you went on to Cambridge and you, you played a bit there. And I think you had a relationship with, um, or meet and encounters at least, with, with Mike Brearley yes. in Cambridge in the early 1960s. You, I think, made use in Cambridge of your sort of qualifications as a county cricketer in Ireland. But if I may ask, how seriously were you taken as a cricketer, as an Irish cricketer, were you taken as seriously as if you'd been, you know, an Irish rugby player, an Irish soccer player, an Irish golfer? Oh, I 
I don't know. Always a bit of a difficulty for the Irish to be taken seriously in England. (laughs) 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 But uh, no, I think it was... uh, it was just a funny thing that I applied for a trial and Mike Brearley said, well, what qualifications have you? <laughs> Mike Brearley was in the captain of the Cambridge he team. He was captain it? of the yeah. game. Marvellous, wonderful cricketer in his day. He said, what qualifications have you? So I said, well, I played for County Mead. <laughs> the county. <laughs> he didn't quite know what that meant. But it put me on a par with people who played for their schools in England or something. So I got a trial. I didn't make much good use of it the last. I got a few games for the Crusaders later. I tried to persuade him to give me a game for the varsity itself. I said I'd give him a speech in the Union when I was president. He could speak on the paper in the Union and perhaps I could play for the varsity. So we did a deal on that, I thought. But then he said he didn't want to speak. He was going to speak that God didn't exist or something, but he decided he didn't want to speak. So I said, well, I'd still like to play my game. <laughs> but it didn't, it didn't happen at all. The Basting team was quite good. I played for Christ, of course, the college and the cuppers. You, you, I'm sure you played in that, Peter. I did, yes. And then I remember playing for Crusaders against the Lee School, and I had a long partnership with a boy, Mark Faber. He was the grandson of Harold Macmillan, and we had a long partnership. Cousin of, presumably a cousin of David Faber, who brother. was a very, very good cricketer. And an brother. MP. Brother. And he later had a career with Sussex. Oh, really? In county yeah. cricket. Mark Faber did. Mark yeah. Faber had a career with um, uh, with Sussex. Charles, we get this long period of, shall I say, relative stagnation, I think one could say, in Irish cricket, or at least a plateau in Irish cricket, for, until about the 1990s. And then suddenly we see a big uplift in the standard of Irish cricket. Is that just the result of cricketing developments? Is that just the fact that a lot of young and talented players came together and were coached and developed? Or were there, do you think there were some other sort of wider developments that might have facilitated cricket? Um, it might be peace in Northern Ireland and the island went through a long economic boom in the in 2000s. Were there some sort of wider social factors in that revival? It wouldn't have had anything to do with peace in Northern Ireland, strangely. It would have been I think more the prosperity, perhaps, of the 90s, or perhaps it was just a few individuals that thought they should professionalise Irish cricket, that it was falling apart, falling behind, when you just had a group of club cricketers coming together to play against professionals. It wasn't it. So Cricket Ireland, uh, they got this coach, Hendricks, in, and perhaps it's just the, I don't know if there was a similar thing in Scotland, but it certainly seemed to encourage cricket. And teams that had coaches coming, Australian coaches and New Zealand would come for the summer and coach people in clubs. Yes, that, that may have helped. And I suppose the example, Ed Joyce really led the way. He's quite important, really, in the whole thing. You know, his being good in Trinity and going on to um, play for an English county. And that started that trend. 
And we were lucky in some people who settled in Ireland. That would be a function of the economic boom which started in the 90s. Fred Johnston came from Australia and he captained. There was a chap called Jeremy Bray from England who was very good. A man called Botha from South Africa. And um, so they both, they were the first boom in getting us ahead. We joined the ICC. That happened in 1990. That was the beginning of the Really war. late in the day, isn't it, joining the ICC in 1990? Yeah. It wasn't, yes, I suppose. Um, it's ahead of, ahead of Scotland, I think. Yes, it's funny that it did get ahead of Scotland because when I was coming into cricket in the 50s, Scotland had got ahead of Ireland. I mean, it was a great highlight of Irish cricket, the game against Scotland. It started before the First World War and it went on through for decades after that. It was, of course, the gentlemen of Ireland versus the gentlemen of Scotland for many years. And there was a kind of affinity between the kind of people who played cricket in Scotland and those who played cricket in Ireland. A similar thing was in rugby union. But uh, strangely, uh, we seem to get ahead of them at some stage, and I don't know why that happened. And then you produced this genius, Anne Morgan, didn't you? Who's a, I remember giving him the Young Cricketer of the Year Award as the visiting speaker in the Irish Cricket Union in about yes. the early 2000s. This wave of a boy, and I remember you telling me this, this, this man is going to be one of the greatest cricketers of all time. Yes, he was a prodigy, really, who came from this uh, North County Dublin part where cricket had continued to be played in a rural community of the kind which everywhere else in Ireland had gone over to the Gaelic Games. And it continued to be played by these people in North County Dublin. And Rush, he came from Rush, I think, oh, was yeah. the club he played for. But he was spotted, he got a... I don't know whether his schooling was a kind of sports scholarship in CUS, Catholic University School, which was a good cricket school. So he played there. But people spotted him as an extraordinary talent. I remember Lingard Goulding, uh, seeing him play at that stage, wrote about him when he was only a prep school player. Oh, really, Lingard spotted him. The, the great, the one we discussed him last time you came on. Yeah. The wonderful wicketkeeper, Walter Monckton's grandson, and of course we owe it to Walter Monckton that we've Richard here. <laughs> <laughs> Goodness, you remember? Yes. So things yes. go in circles. But uh, Lingard was coaching his boys at Headford School, and they played against CUS, I suppose, a prep school, I think under twelves or that age. And he said, Lingard used to produce a handbook every year, a kind of wisdom of his his boy cricketer. I've read several of them. They're very, very enjoyable reads. Amazing. And he said he he hadn't seen anyone so good at his age since he himself was at prep school with the Narb of Patordi. Really? And so Lingard Goulding spotted Owen Morgan. At the age of what, 12, 11? I suppose 11, 12, yes. Plenty. Have you got that pamphlet or book? Which oh, yes, I would have it, yes. yes and he I saw have. in the. Yeah. Uh, what, what a good eye Lingard would have had. The best player he'd seen at that age since the Nob of Pataudi, who went on yeah, to play. Whatever prep school he was at, uh, Ludgrove <laughs> or somewhere like that. Yes. And so 
Owen Morgan, in a way, it was a loss, of course, to Irish cricket because he goes he goes over the Irish Channel and plays for England. And if he if he had stayed with Ireland, he would have made the All National team quite something. He did play a few times. Uh, quite, he had quite a few games. He played in one of the World Cups, uh, the one in Pakistan. I, uh, uh, or no, the one in the West Indies. Yes, and he he, didn't, he strangely didn't do that well uh, at, in, in that particular series. And then, of course, he goes to Middlesex. He does amazing things for Middlesex. He sort of reinvents one-day batting when he's at Middlesex. He, strangely, he didn't do so well in the Test uh, thing. He played got a century off Pakistan, and then he got a bad century, I think, off India. And they didn't seem to ever... He lost his place on the Test team, and they were never invited again. Personally, I think he should come back as captain of the England Test team. Yeah. Because uh, he's got he's clearly got very remarkable leadership abilities. Yeah. An exceptional cricket brain, whereas I think the Joe Root, a wonderful batsman, is somehow diminished by being captain of England. And I think if he could just go back to the ranks and concentrate on scoring runs of Owen Morgan as captain of England, that would be the way to win the Ashes. There doesn't seem to be any move for that, and he must be yeah. near the end of his, yeah. his uh, cricket career at this stage. No, he's been a, one of the remarkable signature players of modern of the modern game of cricket, the way he's t- taken England to that one day championship, the World Cup last year, the way he's led his team, he's a f- truly great cricketer. Another thing is Irish people cheer for England who would never have cheered for them before. I'm going to ask about that. Has it been an influence on his Irish following? And has he particularly has he inspired more participation in cricket? In Ireland? No, I wouldn't say. Um, I'd be surprised if that uh, was cause and effect. It may be, but I, um, no, I don't think there's a focus of that kind that would have inspired. Um, I think it's uh, what's inspired things in cricket in Ireland. It's more television and coverage mm. and uh, perhaps the first last game. And of course, now it depends a lot on immigrants. Actually, it's Ireland's cricket is rather transformed in that way, that a lot of the a high proportion of those playing would come from the India Pakistan people who come here. They haven't really emerged into the Irish cricket team yet, but they're quite a force in the. Very much so. We we've played against several of these. Yes. Immigrant teams and they are fantastic to play against. They're very strong. Uh, yes, so they may be the more the future of Irish cricket. Uh, still, you know, the following for cricket is small enough in Ireland. You don't get big crowds going to even a Test match would be poorly attended. The media give it very poor coverage. There's a little on the television on a special channel. But um, the newspapers cover it much less well than they covered it when I started to play in uh, cricket in the 50s. You'd have much uh, fuller coverage in the Irish Times than you have today. Well, English papers are giving less um, coverage to to English cricket too, so so that's that's not unique. Charles, can you tell us something about Ireland's first-class structure and... 
Can you give us an idea how many full-time professionals there are in, in Irish cricket? I think this is where the test thing has made a big, a big thing. I think there are about 20 people have contracts. Uh, quite well paid contracts and I think the money from that comes from the from the international cricket uh, body and then clubs would have professionals whether they would just be Australians having or New Zealanders having a summer and they would uh, make up the uh, professionals in clubs and uh, that's again that's an interesting comment from Peter de la Pena. We were talking to him about American cricket. Yes. And he mentioned that um, the Americans are very keen actually not to go down Ireland's route of um, developing a first class and a, you know, a, an infrastructure for test cricket because they think, the Americans, that it's, um, you know, that it's saddled Ireland with a lot of costs, which it's not going to be able to redeem for a long time. And um, the Americans want to go, apparently, want full membership of the ICC without forming a test team, without forming a first-class structure. I just wondered, has Ireland, has Ireland's first-class structure been a burden to the finances of Irish cricket? Is it making any sort of money at all, or is it dependent on, on subsidy? And, and where's that subsidy coming from? Yes, I think the subsidy is coming from the international cricket body. I don't think it's been massively... The Irish Sports Council gives something, but not in a big way. I think it's been enhanced by getting test status. Uh, It's been funded more by that, as far as I know. That prompts me to wonder, does Irish cricket get supported by government in both um, at all in... um, in the Republic and, and in the North? Does it, have any, does it have relationships with both sports ministries? Yes, the countries? Sports Council. There's an Irish Sports Council which would give money to, uh, to cricket and I think the equivalent body in the North gives a certain amount to uh, provide sports grounds and all that and subsidise it. But I'm not quite clear how much of the expenses it covers. It would have to cover a lot because the subscriptions to clubs, it's not a wealthy community. It's young people who will be playing cricket. So unless it got substantial public, uh, you couldn't employ professionals and people like that. Charles, we spoke a lot last time about um, the literary tradition of uh, Irish cricket and some of the great writers um, of the past that have played it or watched it and um, supported it. I just wondered, in the modern era, are there any Irish writers who are writing about cricket or influenced by it? No, uh, there seems to be nothing in Irish literature. And the one thing uh, that has occurred, if you look at the the main Irish literary input in recent years, has been poetic, that Morgan Dockrell, who's a cousin of George Dockrell, the test player, has four poems in the MCC anthology of cricket verse. Really? Including a wonderful poem to Colin Cowdrey, of whom he was a great fan. <laughs> and there's a book called A Breathless Hush, which oh. is the MCC anthology of cricket verse. Do you have uh, with you, can you read us out some of Morden Dockrell on Colin Cowdrey? Uh, yes, he has. Uh, what's this? 
To seek your scores my anxious eyes first range, the cricket columns found, I pause immersed. Next come the columns of the stock exchange, with my declining fortunes roundly cursed. In constant star, once more transcend despair. I'd rather see you rise than any share. <laughs> oh, beautiful. Oh, very lovely. Yeah. Poem that Braun War would approve of it. Um, yeah. It rhymes and scans and makes sense. Oh yes, he, he, <laughs> he was a master. He's a master. He was a master in Saint Columbus, and he got four poems in the in this. So that seems to be the main uh, thing. Uh, the, the other thing I wanted to follow up on was a, a question Richard had posed about Captain Buller. I oh. researched that a little in a book. Vivian Igo has written a wonderful book on the characters in James Joyce's Ulysses. Oh, and yeah, yeah. Uh, he's the man mentioned as hitting the six, which went through window of Kildare Street Club. And he came over. Uh, apparently, he was the handsomest man, according to his obituary, who ever played cricket. He was an old Harrovian, and he <laughs> came over with the Isingari teams in the 1860s, as early as that. And he died. He dies in 1904 or six. You know, he was 60 years of age then. So how James Joyce, writing in the uh, early 20th century, would have fastened on them, I don't know. And the games he played that are recorded were in the Vice Regal Lodge. So whether he played it cricket or not, it's rather a mystery, having gone into it. Anyway, I thought, as you asked me about it, mm. I should research it for you. It, it's Vivian Igo is the book. Well, thank you. I tell you what, I mean, that's a subject for a PhD by uh, a Joyce scholar, if you ask me. Yeah, <laughs> How Joyce identified this. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Mysterious Major Buller. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. 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 Morgan Dockrell, you said, was a teacher at uh, St Columbus College where I of course we played a lot of cricket I'm sure you've played loads of cricket with its remarkable short boundary on the leg side with running up a bank yeah um, one of our players once scored um, 190 there in a the course of an afternoon um, <laughs> the um, well Charles a very, very important date next summer uh, the, the first Sunday in August is our team against the Leprechauns at Mount Juliet, uh, God willing. Let's hope that conditions will allow us to, to play that fixture and we can play the Leprechauns, a game which we very sadly couldn't play last year. But the highlight of the Leprechauns year, the game against you, it's wonderful that's gone on for years and it's so good. Perhaps we should make it a two-innings match yeah. uh, next year as we brought you back for a, a two-innings uh, session. Well, so grateful to play, uh, for you to coming on, Charles. It's lovely to talk to you. brings back so many memories and so much hope for the future. Yes, well, let us hope all this COVID goes and perhaps you'll bring Richard over with you. I'd love to. I'd love to do it again. I'd love to. I think you have to come this summer, Richard. It looks like it, yep. Um, I'll make an effort, even though I'm in, now in the twilight of a career that never really had a dawn. Um, but, uh, <laughs> well, it's goodbye for me, Peter Oborn, in a still freezing cold Wiltshire. Goodbye for me, Richard Heller, in a pretty chilly but slightly warmer southeast London. Yes, and goodbye, Charles Leicester from Sunday Dublin.